smooth jazz gospel there. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, amen, amen. <laughs> uh, if you got your Bibles, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you need a Bible, you can find one under, the, under your cheers. Um, you can find it on page 981 of the Bibles provided. If you need a Bible of your own, feel free to take that Bible with you as our gift to you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The title for this morning's sermon is directly from the text, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You know, we live in a world that's full of valuation that operates off of valuation. And perhaps you get those unsolicited emails weekly from Zillow providing you a zestimate how much you might fetch for your home if you were to put it on the market at any particular point of time. Or if you've ever been in the market or searching for a car, the, the first thing that you do, whether you're trying to buy a car or sell a car, is to look up the Kelly's Blue Book value to make sure that you get a good deal. A number of brothers this morning have their minds set not just on the sermon, but on fantasy football. And in fantasy football, what you do, are doing feverishly all week and maybe even right now on your phones, I hope not, is seeing which player has the most value or potential value to score the most points so that you might win against your opponent. We live in a world where there's worth attached to things. 
and that informs and animates our actions. In such a world, then, we must ask, what's most worthy? What's most valuable? What is that thing for you? Is it a good name? A reputation for being cool or uh, caring or charismatic? Uh, perhaps it's your performance or your pedigree or some possession. Those things in and of themselves are fine. They have some value. But when you put them in the place of primacy or utmost importance and put your trust in them, they will have disastrous effects. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul discusses the most important topic in all the world, salvation. Our eternal salvation, what happens to our souls forever. And he calls us to make the right valuation in this life that will determine our eternal lives. And he makes the point that Christ is more valuable than anything or anyone else in the world. Because Christ is the only person who can grant you salvation for eternity. And so Paul warns us in this passage not to put anything or anyone above Christ Jesus. Here's Paul's main idea of the sermon. And so the main idea of this passage and the main idea of the sermon, you can find it on your bulletins in the, the sermon notes passage. Christian, beware of adding anything beyond faith in Christ alone as the basis for your salvation. Christian, beware of adding anything beyond faith in Christ alone as the basis for your salvation. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll hang our thoughts on, on two points, two kind of directives that we see in the text. Number one, rejoice in Christ and reject counterfeit gospels. We see that in verses one through three. And number two, reflect upon why our works are far inferior to faith in Christ. We see that in verses four through 11. So two points, rejoice in Christ and reject counterfeit gospels. And number two, reflect upon why our works are far inferior to faith in Christ. Number one, rejoice in Christ and reject all counterfeit gospels. Look with me again at verse one. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Finally, there at the beginning of, of verse one, doesn't mean that Paul is closing the book. I mean, he goes on to, to, to speak, to write for two more chapters. Rather, it signals a shift to the next topic of discussion. After previously commending the other's oriented service of two trusted and faithful servants, Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul now moves to, to some commands for the Philippian church. And the first command is an old command to have joy. Paul tells them to rejoice. If you shift your eyes over to, to verse 18 of chapter 2. You see, Paul there also commands the Philippians to be glad, to rejoice. 
It's a word, it's a theme we see splattered throughout the book of Philippians. Some form of joy or rejoice or gladness is found 15 times in these four little chapters. But it's much different from the, the sappy sentimentalism that the world prizes and promotes. I mean, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to rejoice. We're even commanded by the world in songs and slogans to not worry, but to exclusively be happy. You see, the world's idea of happiness is one devoid of difficulty, one that depends on subjective and often selfish feelings. And so I'm not happy becomes legitimate and indisputable grounds for everything from leaving a church to divorcing a spouse to sadly even taking your own life. That's because the world's happiness is flimsy and failing. And so it's really a kind of soul-crushing, spirit-draining experience where we're constantly commanded to be happy and yet consistently being offered deficient products that promise but never deliver the happiness that we so desperately want and need. But Paul's concept of joy is not one absent of sorrow and worry and difficulty, but one that persists even in the deepest of pains and problems. I mean, even his own circumstances are those filled with sorrow as Paul writes this letter from a prison cell. As Paul has his name slandered on the outside by people seeking their own reputation and to ruin his. And yet, even in the midst of all of it, Paul is brimming with joy. He's rejoicing. And even in the midst of the pushback and the conflicts and the rising persecutions that the Philippians are facing, what Paul wants them to do is not to fight back, but to fight for joy, to be Rejoicing. But how is that possible? Well, notice Paul doesn't just give a contextless command to rejoice, but rather notice the, the sphere where Paul places this joy. Rejoice, he tells them, in the Lord. You see, there's a distinctive joy. A joy that you won't find nowhere else, a distinct joy that's deeply and uniquely tied to the person of Jesus Christ. There is other joy, if you, if you want to call it that, but it's really a kind of false joy, a kind of temporary joy, a fragile joy that falls apart when life falls apart. Friends, that's why the object of your joy matters. Place your joy in people. Place your joy in possessions. Place your joy in circumstances and you will find your joy often depleted. You will find yourself often sorrowful and saddened and near despair because you placed your joy in the wrong place. But when you place your joy in God, specifically here in God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you rooted it in unshakable and fertile soil. You placed it in the very ground of joy itself in God. I mean, the Bible tells us in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. I went to public school in PG County. But when it says fullness of joy, I'm sorry for all my teachers. That's not a dig on PG County schools. I love PG County schools. 
all that to say, I ain't the sharpest knife in the, in the drawer, right? But when the Bible says there's fullness of joy in the Lord, I take that to mean that there's no joy outside of the Lord, right? Either the cup is full or it's empty, right? There's fullness of joy in the Lord. So when you search for joy somewhere else, you're searching in places that find yourself to be a desert land. What they going to give you? And yet you keep on digging for water in the sand. We were created by God. We were created for God. And our hearts and souls only find rest and joy and satisfaction in God. You, you were created for other things. So why do you keep trying to find joy in other things? In marriage. In finances. In a job. Those might be means, but, but the root of your joy is always the Lord. How different is this understanding that the joy is found in God? How, how different is that from your perception of God? From your perception of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, for years, I sat in seats like this as a, as a young teen going to church with my mom and hearing pastors talk about this kind of thing, this joy found in Jesus. And I thought, baloney, impossible. I thought if I stop living the life I'm living and give my life to Jesus, what I would find is not joy, but dreariness. And all the fun would stop with all Jesus and his restrictiveness. But what you find is actually that without Jesus is when you're most restricted. You're restricted from having and experiencing the true joy that's only found in him. You put a cap on your own level of joy. You put a cap on how much happiness that you can have. You've restricted yourself or restricting your heart from going to him. You're restricted from knowing the deep joy that's produced through what Christ Jesus has done for you. How he's died in your place, risen from the grave to save you, to rescue you from sin's rule and from God's wrath. He loves us and has demonstrated that love and means for us to reciprocate that love, but we keep on running away from him. He saved us. And when you go to him, you realize how deep and lovely he is. And the appropriate response, the only appropriate response is joy. Which is really a kind of safeguard for our souls. Notice Paul says in verse one that to write the same things to you. I mean, I use joy like so many times in this book to write the same things to you to keep talking about joy in Christ is no bother to me, but is safe for you. That's because of the, the persistent dangers, the ongoing and unceasing temptations to replace Jesus for some other thing as the source of our joy and boasting. And so because of the persistent dangers, Paul has no problem being a pest and making this persistent demand. Root your joy in Christ alone, not in circumstances and not in circumcision. You see this command in verse one to rejoice in Christ is not just a standalone charge. It's specifically intended to protect these believers from false teachers and their false teaching about circumcision. 
And so Paul moves on to warn the church of such people. Such people. And, and check out the language he uses in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is not someone who loves trashing people. He's not someone who's harsh and hypercritical. I mean, on the contrary, he's a man who has no problem speaking highly of others. We just saw that in our previous text. Paul praised the character and the service of Timothy and Epaphroditus. But Paul is also not someone who's too timid to let loose on folks who are dangerous. Uh, Paul doesn't have a weak stomach for warning folks of real dangers. And so here it's not that he stoops to name calling. But rather, his language highlights the seriously damning nature of the doctrines being spewed by some people amidst the church. He calls them dogs. Dogs in the first century weren't cute, cuddly pets. In my estimation, in the 21st century, dogs are still not cute, cuddly pets. But that's my own personal problem, right? Dogs were dangerous. Dogs were dirty. Dogs were nasty. The Jewish people had resorted to calling the Gentiles dogs because of how unclean they were in their sight. But here in a crazy twist of irony, Paul calls some Jewish people the actual dogs. Some Jewish people who actually thought that they were working for God's favor, that they were doing good deeds, Paul instead calls evildoers. Who were these people? And what were they doing? They were a group of Jews known as the Judaizers or as the circumcision party. We read about them in places like Acts chapter 15 or Galatians chapter 2. And what were they doing? They were teaching that Gentiles, non-Jews, needed to become Jews and follow Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be saved. Listen to our introduction to them in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Luke, the author of Acts, tells, tells us that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Circumcision was the physical sign that marked off God's covenant people Israel in the Old Testament. We first read about it in Genesis chapter 17 after God entered into a covenant with Abraham, promising to, to bring a great people from his line, promising that he would bless him, promising that, that Abraham and his descendants would inherit a land. Then God commanded that all the male offspring of Abraham be circumcised as a sign and seal of this covenant that God entered into them with, marking them off as God's chosen covenant people. But that was for the old covenant people of God. It was not the sign of the new covenant people. So that all these Judaizers were doing now in trying to convince and command people to be circumcised in order to be saved was telling them to actually mutilate the flesh. Paul makes the point, there's actually, actually no spiritual importance to it. There's no spiritual value to being circumcised. 
It didn't affect one's spiritual standing at all. Because physical circumcision is no longer what defines and marks off God's people. Neither is physical lineage or tied to any Jewish descent or any of the Jewish practices. What's truly required to belong to God's people is faith in the finished work of Christ alone. And anybody, anybody, no matter who they are, no matter what line or lineage they say they come from, how far it goes back, no matter how many degrees they have or how many little letters they have behind their names, anybody who tries to convince you otherwise, who tries to get you to subtract from or add to the finished work of Christ is not someone you need to keep an open mind around. It's not someone you need to give a listening ear to. It's someone you need to look out for and fiercely reject. Because they don't provide you anything that you need. With all their deep sounding doctrine, they can go back into the lineage and tell you all these little things with, with all their kind of sophisticated verbiage, with all their scriptures even. Telling you what you need to do, they're not telling you anything that you actually need. Because you already have all that you need. I mean, look at verse three. Here with these Judaizers saying you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. What Paul says in verse three, we already are the circumcision. What you going to give me that I ain't already got? It's an amazing statement. Paul includes himself. A physically circumcised Jew. And the Philippians. This church made up of largely uncircumcised Gentiles and says we are the circumcision. Not because they've all been physically circumcised, but because they've all been spiritually circumcised. A circumcision was ultimately never about cutting off a piece of foreskin, but was always about the posture and the priorities of the hearts. Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He says that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Paul and the Philippians had been recipients of a spiritual surgery where what was cut out was their old, hard, impenitent hearts. And it was replaced with hearts of flesh that could feel and could rightly put their faith in Christ and to follow him. They made up the true people of God, as do all of us who've been born again and are marked by what Paul says they are all marked by. Worshiping by the spirit of God. With new hearts and new spirits that desire to worship the Lord here on a Sunday morning in a service and everywhere from Monday through Saturday, wherever the Lord has us. We worship in spirit and in truth, not according to some sacrifices, not according to some offerings, not according to a place or a land. What's happening in Israel is horrible, but that is not our home. No, we look for a heavenly Jerusalem. 
all these little things that tied national Israel, Old Testament Israel, no longer are binding to us. They were pointing to something better, to someone better, Jesus Christ. And so why are you trying to go back to training wheels when you already are on two wheels? Why are you going back for your learner's permit when you already have your driver's permit? Why are you going back to elementary school when you've already graduated? Why are you going back to the law when you already have the gospel? Why are you going back to circumcision when you have Jesus Christ? Why are you going back to doing this and doing that when you have a new heart and you willingly and lovingly follow the Lord? There's a lot of people today that are trying to put binds, chains on Christians. You must do this in order to really be saved. No matter how convincing they sound, no matter how sober-minded and sincere they might be, friends, they are dogs you need to look out for. You don't need to call them dogs to their face. And you don't need to attack them. You need to tell them the true gospel. You need to remember who you are. What they sell and you don't need. You got something better. You have the spirit of the living God living inside you. You can cut all flesh until, you, until the life is bare. It won't soften your heart any. The Spirit has already done that surgery inside you. What you looking for, for some other thing to do? And if you've ever tried to live by the law, why would you even want to? Some of us have tried that before. We've slaughtered lambs on the Passover. We've kept the dove offerings and the flower offerings and all these things. All you end up doing is running yourself ragged. And nothing is rewarded to you place our confidence Paul says these new covenant people us who worship by the spirit of God we place our confidence we we boast in we glory in only Jesus Christ and we put absolutely zero confidence zero trust zero reliance on the flesh for nothing good have I done nothing good is in me dead in trespasses and sins was I Hostile and hardened against Jesus Christ was I. And yet he loved me. He left heaven and came for me. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by becoming a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself even to the point of death death on a Roman cross for us so that we could be saved so that we might have eternal life he rose from the grave and he sent his spirit to quicken our dead hearts and to give new life to see and believe in him for eternal life we did nothing he's done everything nothing are we apart from him apart from him I can do nothing Therefore, I will only rejoice in Christ and reject all counterfeits that demand Christ plus me, Christ plus efforts, Christ plus works. No, in Christ alone, as we sang earlier, my hope is found. In Christ alone, my joy is found. I put no confidence in the flesh. That's the proper posture of God's people, of Christians. Rejoice in Christ and reject all counterfeits. But Paul sees the need to press that home even deeper. And so in verses 4 through 11, he invites us to join him on an intimate journey and calls us to reflect upon why our works 
are so far inferior to faith in Christ. That's the second point here. Reflect upon why our works are far inferior to faith in Christ. You know, one of the many reasons why I love the Bible is the kind of beauty and diversity that you find God uses to, to drive home his point. It's not just one stale, static book where everything is the same. And yet, isn't it funny how often religious folk present a kind of rigidity about what it looks like to be religious that you don't find in the Bible? I mean, people say things like, our worship songs need to be full of rich, unique verses and not be repetitive. That has some value. But you read the Psalms, Israel's divinely inspired songbook, and you see that many of the Psalms are full of repetition. Or people say things like, you just need to, to share the gospel and never share your personal testimony. You keep yourself out of it. Well, well the gospel indeed is primary, is, is what, mo what must be shared. But you also, in the Bible, see a good bit of testimony about how the gospel impacts real people. And that's what we see here, Paul's personal testimony. He's called believers to find their joy in Christ, and he's called out the circumcision party as being evil unbelievers with their demands for circumcision and adherence to the law, making the point that placing confidence in the flesh has no value. What if there's any suspicion lingering that Paul don't know what he's talking about? Or that Paul is just an armchair theologian speaking in theory. Well, Paul here puts himself in the equation and says, trust me, I'm speaking from experience. He us in verses four through six from his past unconverted life as a staunch Jew to the dramatic trans transformation of his conversion in verses seven through 11. So first, let's look at Paul's past. Look with me starting at verse four. Paul has just stated that we, the, the true people of God, put no confidence in the flesh. Though, he says in verse 4, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. We love language like that, don't we? Bravado, boasting, swag. I mean, you put a beat behind Paul and he's on his way to a successful hip hop career. I mean, he takes on all challengers. If anyone else in the entire known world, gather them all up, put, put them all together. If anyone else in all the world thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, whoever they are, I have more. Bring on their record and I will demolish it with mine. He says in 2 Corinthians, I got to speak like a fool to, to convince fools. Y'all like, like this kind of thing, so let me enter into it. Right? He does, he says elsewhere, I become all things to all people so that I might win some. Uh, you like this kind of language? Let, let me go ahead and adopt this kind of language so I might win you to this position. Why does Paul have so much confidence in his record? Two things. His birth and his behavior. Or to put it another way, his pedigree and his performance. First, look at Paul's birth, his, his bloodline, his pedigree that he boasts in. He says in verse 5 that he was circumcised on the eighth day. 
he was born into a family of devout Jewish folks who devoutly kept the law. And you remember back to Genesis 17, the passage that we referenced earlier where God established circumcision as a sign of his covenant with Abraham. Well, he also commanded Abraham when that circumcision needed to be performed on the eighth day. And so any male who really wanted to be regarded as a true descendant of the great Abraham, as part of God's covenant community, had to be circumcised on the eighth day. It's why in the Gospel of Luke, in, in Luke chapter 1, Luke meticulously records John the Baptist's circumcision on the eighth day. And he follows it a chapter later by meticulously detailing Jesus' circumcision on the eighth day. Paul here adds this physical mark of distinction and devout observance to his resume as well, circumcised on the eighth day. Next he says he's of, of the people of Israel. Uh, Paul here goes to his ethnicity as a mark of pride. He was an ethnic Israelite, a full-blooded Israelite. Not just the, the offspring of Abraham, but the offspring of, of promise. Not the line of Ishmael, but the, the line of Israel, a full-blooded Jew who enjoyed all the benefits that that entailed. To the Jews belong the covenants. To the Jews belong the oracles of God. To the Jews, God wrote his very word and gave the commandments. To the Jews, God made special and specific promises. And not only was Paul a full-blooded Jew, of the people of Israel, but he was from a distinguished tribe in Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember back, it was the tribe of Benjamin that produced the first king in Israel, Saul the Benjaminite. Paul may have been named after him. Remember, Paul is his Gentile name. His Jewish name is, is Saul. Paul says here, I'm from royalty. <laughs> Sam, I got kings in my line. What y'all going to do with me? This purple in my, in my family history. He goes on to claim to, to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. What's that mean? Well, it means that, that Paul embodied Jewish culture. He, he wasn't just born into it and then like went off to study somewhere else. Right? He was born in D.C., but then he, he lived most of his life over in Maryland. You know, D.C. folks, they'd be harsh about, you know, you own in D.C., right? Now, Paul say, no, 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 I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I live this now. Right? I'm all up in this culture, right? You cut me, I bleed Hebrew. I speak Hebrew. I know all the customs. I know the language from Hebrew to Aramaic. Don't play with me. Bring your resume. Bring everything that you have. Paul moves on, though. If that wasn't enough, he like, come on, what are you going to do? If that wasn't enough, he moves on from boasting in the things that were his by birth to now boasting is in his behavior, in his performance, the things that he attained. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. This man willingly signed up to join the strictest religious, religious sect in Judaism. I mean, joining the Pharisees was like the religious version of joining the Army Special Forces or the Navy SEALs. It was hardcore. 
the Pharisees assiduously sought to keep the law. So stringent were they that they propped up dozens of additional laws around the 622 of God's original laws in order to keep people from breaking God's law. The 622 wasn't enough. You need even more to keep you from those 622. Paul was not only a member of them, he was their most zealous member. He says in verse 6, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He sought to protect and promote the Pharisee way of keeping God's law. Jew first, Jew only. And, and so when this new movement of people popped into the scene, calling themselves the way, talking about some Jesus who was the Messiah, who had died and rose again to save them from their sins, Paul thought nonsense. He was having none of it. And he didn't just tweet or type about his displeasure. No, he took action. He went to the Pharisaic leaders and asked for letters to go and carry off men and women to prison and to kill them. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says that this Saul or Paul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was indiscriminate in his intensity to eradicate Christianity. You could not find a more committed Jew or a more righteous one. He makes the amazing claim that as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Now, now of course, Paul sinned. Of course, he couldn't track what was going on in his heart. But his point here is that with all the external commands of God's law, and, and even all the extra biblical commands that the Pharisees set up around him, he could not point to a single thing that he had broken. And neither could anyone else. When they looked at Paul's life, they said, oh, this character, this guy's record is matchless. They couldn't find one thing that would diminish Paul's standing as an upright Jew. Paul puts his resume against anyone who's ever lived. From his performance to his pedigree, he trusts that he stands above anyone else. Paul here shows his receipts. If anyone else thinks he has confidence, reason for confidence in the flesh, in who he is and what he's done, I have far more. But what will these accomplishments and all this confidence accomplish before God? Absolutely nothing. They give absolutely, even with all this record, they give absolutely no confidence of pardon. No confidence of assurance. No reality of a clean and purified conscience. They give you no standing before him, knowing that you will hear the well done. They don't move the needle at all. All these things all add up. Don't move the needle at all from wretch to saved. From death to eternal life. Paul came to understand that when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And in verses 7 through 11, he lets us in on his post-conversion testimony. Look at verse 7, and Paul says, but. <laughs> it's seemingly the wrong word, though, isn't it? 
I mean, given the impressive record that Paul has just laid out, we expect verse seven to read, and so, or and therefore. I mean, we expect accomplishment to be met with reward, not with rebuttal. We expect verse seven to read, and so God has reserved for me the highest place of honor in heaven because of how I've lived. The total opposite of what is what we find, however. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The apostle suddenly turns accountants and views his life in terms of a spiritual ledger with gains and losses. Whatever gain I had, and there was much a rich heritage, many seemingly righteous works, a zeal for God, a name that rung out. Paul once viewed all these things as positives, as things that he would present to God to earn God's favor on that last day. All the people around him would look at them as positives as well. Paul is definitely going to heaven. Look at all the things he's done for God. It's the way many Muslims think today. Right. Look at all my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds. All my righteous deeds are on that gain side that God will be happy with. Paul thought if anyone was going to have it off merit, it was this man. Until he met another man. When Paul was confronted on the Damascus Road and came, as it were, face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. His impressive life didn't look all that impressive anymore. Jesus' very presence invalidated Paul's performance. You see, because if human efforts could earn salvation, then there would have been no reason for Jesus to come to earth. There would have been no reason for Jesus Christ to die for our sins. There would have been no reason for Jesus to rise from the grave. But if Jesus had to do all those things, then it means that nothing we could do was good enough, was righteous enough, was complete enough to earn God's salvation. Paul thought the Christians were tripping with their talk of a crucified, risen Savior. But when he saw that he was actually real, it wrecked his world and overturned his record. All the things that Paul previously thought of as gains, he now tied them all up and all of a sudden they had a negative sign in front of them. They, they were lost. He was in the deficit. All for the sake of Christ. He realized, I don't need any of them. I need him. And he gave his life to the Lord. Friends, I wonder what things you might be holding on to as gains. What are the things that, that even secretly in your heart, you're thinking is going to earn you something, gain you something in God's sight? What things have you added to the person and work of Christ or, or put in his place and placed your confidence in? Is it your ethnicity? Like Paul, I mean, he too once boasted in his Jewish heritage. I wonder, are you too tightly tied to yours? I said this before, but 
for years, this church placed as grounds for acceptance, not just faith in Jesus Christ, but faith, faith in Jesus Christ and white skin. As African-Americans tried to join this church, they were turned away. You don't have enough, but we have faith in Jesus. Well, that's not enough. You, you need something else on top of that. Well, 40, 50 years later, the neighborhood has changed. Temple Hills is now 80% black. The church looks more like the neighborhood. And, and yet, it would be just as wrong for us to elevate blackness as a kind of measure to be met in order to add it to your faith in Christ because faith in Christ ain't enough. Are you black enough? Are you down with the cause? Friends, do not elevate ethnicity as something that's on that gain side. It ain't going to gain you nothing in regards to salvation. Maybe it's citizenship and allegiance to, to country that you count as gain. And many have wrongly conflated ancient Israel with modern day America and thought that we, the whole country, are God's chosen people born in the U.S. of A. Or perhaps more specifically, it's you place your allegiance to a specific political party. Faith in Jesus plus Republicanism or Democrat voting is what really earns you God's favor. You dare not say that, but let somebody vote different from you. That faith in Christ alone becomes faith in Christ alone. Plus, you add the candidate's name. Maybe it's your family line. Your mama and daddy both knew Jesus. They served tirelessly in the church. You've been in church from, from day one. They've instilled in you a, a deep commitment to Jesus and to his local body. And maybe it's your performance. You've never drank or smoked. You come to church every Sunday, even twice on first and third Sundays. You give generously. You, 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 you have consistent quiet times. You're a prayer warrior. You're known for your great faith. Well, friends, all of those things have their place. Just as long as you don't place them as the root of your salvation. As the reason God will save you. When it comes to salvation, if you try to tally up those things as what really set you apart, as what really make you worthy in God's sight, you find that they will only put you on the negative side. What you need, all you need is Jesus Christ. Paul came to that conclusion years ago. And time has not changed his mind. He hasn't reworked the numbers and fiddled with the calculations to come to a, a different conclusion. No, he's even more convinced years later of his gospel math. Notice how he moves to present evaluations in verse 8. In verse 7, he talks about his conversion and said, I counted what I thought to be gain as loss, past tense. Verse 8, present tense. Indeed, even now, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, nothing, in order that I might gain Christ. Paul's been a Christian for a couple of decades now. 
And as long as he's been a Christian, what grows in him is a depreciation of any human works to gain righteousness. I don't even care years later of my impressive record for Jesus now. You see, before he boasted of his record without Jesus. Now, years later, he's not even boasting about, about how many churches he's planted. Right? How many missions dollars he's raised? How many pastors he's seen installed? No, he puts no confidence still in himself. There's a growing depreciation of any human works to gain righteousness and a deeper devotion and appreciation and fellowship with Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Paul says there's a, a surpassing worth of knowing him. Reminds me of an old gospel song that just asked the question, do, do you know him? Do you have an intimacy with him? Do you learn from him? Do you, do you know what it is to, 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 to be his and to be conformed into his very image? It's instructive for, for many of us because I think for some of us, we, we initially come to faith in Christ knowing it's not of works that Christ alone saves us. But then as we progress in the Christian life, there's a strange phenomenon where we place more emphasis on our works while seemingly growing more distant to Christ. As we grow more mature, it seems, or at least longer in the faith, why does it often seem for Christians that our relationship with Jesus is drier than when we first trusted in Jesus? I think because too many of us take our eyes off of Jesus. We settle for knowing about Christ instead of actually knowing him. Well, how do you know him? The same way you get to know anybody. You spend more time with him. You, you read his word, not to ease your conscience about having a daily quiet time. Not to tell people, I read my Bible today. No, you read your Bible expecting to meet Jesus. Friends, tomorrow morning when you open up that Bible, expect to meet Jesus. Meet him in his word. Pray, ask the Lord to grow your affections for him, to make him sweet to your soul. Follow Christ and submit to him. Friends, you won't grow close to Jesus. He won't be supremely valuable to you if you keep holding him at a distance, if you keep not doing what he says, your affections grow, his glory in your eyes grows only as you do what he says. Friends, for some of you this morning, that means obeying Jesus' most basic and primary command to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. I told you before, as a teenager in the early 20s and mid-20s, I thought Jesus would have no joy. There'd be no joy in Jesus. It's because I didn't submit to Jesus. You, you don't get all the benefits of a relationship while you in another relationship. That's madness right there. That's crazy. No, you got to cut that old thing off and, and, and go to him. You got to submit to him. Then you realize, oh, this thing really is sweet. Oh, he really is all that he says he is. You put one toe in, you're going to feel that. Right? You give Jesus a little bit, you're going to feel that. You keep trying to play both sides of the fence. Or as Jesus says, you try to be hot or try to be lukewarm instead of hot or cold. You're going to feel that. Right now, you 
maybe for the first time ever, need to stop playing like a Christian and actually become a Christian. You need to stop acting like you know Christ and actually know him. I don't know who I'm talking to this, this morning, but I'm sure I'm talking to somebody. I hope the spirit is tapping on your heart right now and won't allow you to turn off the valve. You will only know Jesus to be who he says he is, supremely valuable and good and all surpassing to you when you turn to him completely. Do that today. Turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ alone. Stop nibbling on Jesus and feasting on your sin. Starve your sin and feast on Jesus. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. These ain't old folks telling you this. These are people who've lived experientially and can tell you this. All of us can give you some version of Paul's story of what our lives used to be, how we found joy and satisfaction in something else, and how now our deepest and sweetest satisfaction, even as life is crazy messy, is Christ. That can be the same for you. If you want to know more about what it looks like to follow Jesus, talk to anyone around you after the service. Come find me at the door. We'd love to talk with you more about that. Everything Paul says compared to Christ is rubbish. It's dung. Because they can't give you what Christ alone can. Righteousness in God's sight. You see that in verse 9? Paul says, ultimately, I want... I need to be found in him, not found boasting in me. <laughs> I don't need to, to be settled in my own work. I need to be found in him. I'm not good enough. Friends, we need on the day of God's judgment, which is certainly coming to be found united to Christ. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law. Why? Because Paul says by works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. Because God requires perfect righteousness for entrance into heaven. Paul had a lot of self-righteous works. According to righteousness under the law, he said he was blameless in men's sight, but not sinless in God's sight. One sin disqualifies every man and woman. And every single man and woman has many sins. And so all of us are naturally disqualified from ever entering into God's presence. We lack the entrance fee of righteousness. But what we lack, God covers. <laughs> He's like, I got you. Right? We lack Jesus Christ. And God gives him. Jesus came and lived the perfect life of righteousness for us. The righteous life that God requires, but that none of us could live, Jesus Christ actually lived. And then he laid down his life and took on our sins freely. He picked up a cross and died in our place. He was buried and rose three days later. He ascended into heaven where he now reigns as eternal Lord over all and commands us all to turn from our sins and trust in him. And for all who do, all who trust in him, his perfect record of righteousness is transferred, is credited to our account. He makes a direct deposit of eternal righteousness for all those who put their faith in him. And in his place, 
He takes away all the negative balances. He takes on all our sins and removes them from our record. So that before God's sight, this is amazing, before God's sight, the hundreds of millions of sins that we've committed in thought and in word and in deed, the things that your mom and daddy don't know about, your spouse don't know about, all those things lodged deep inside of you, all the things you've done from the moment you came out of the womb until the moment you die, all those things as you stand before God are found vanished. He didn't see any of them. Did he forget them? No, what happened is that Christ stepped in your place. And what God sees is he sees you through his son. And what he sees through his son and in his son is the perfect righteousness that he requires. And you have that through faith. You can't work for that. It don't operate like that. It's a gift by grace that God gives through faith. It's the righteousness Paul says here. That solely through faith in Christ, the righteousness that relies on faith, not one ounce of works. Friends, how often do you think about that final day? How often do you think about judgment? We get so tied up into news events, world events, right? Many of us, again, we've talked about things going on in the Middle East. We've talked about things going on in our communities. Just like that, a life can be taken. Them folks who woke up in Israel last Saturday had no idea what was planned and what, what would happen. Many lives were taken. Folks who are getting carjacked out here on St. Barnabas Road who are getting shot have no idea that was the last day of their lives. After the last day of your life comes the judgment. After death, Paul says, comes the judgment. I wonder, are you ready to meet the judge? He's going to call all of us to account. How will you meet him in that day? What will you present before him? He's not going to care how swaggy you are, how much gear you had. He's not going to care about how many girls liked you or guys liked you. He's not going to care about how righteous people thought you were. He's going to care. Are you actually righteous in Christ's sight? Have you placed your faith in him? Are you, are you standing on your own record or on Christ's record? As Paul looks forward to that last day, it motivates his every day. And so notice in verses 10 through 11. Paul says, you know, I'm looking forward to, 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 to that day when I stand before him, righteous in his sight. But even now, what, what I want, I, I want to know him. Verse 10, all of this, trusting in him, putting my faith in him, living for him, that I might know him. And that in knowing him daily, I might know the power of his resurrection. You know, the Bible says that the, the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us. Oh, that's why we, we need to stop living victims. It's like, I don't know if I can stop this sin or, 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 or I don't know if I can tell somebody the gospel. You can't, but, but the spirit of God in you can. We want to know the power of his resurrection. We don't want to live defeated lives. We want to live powerful lives through Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings. If I got to suffer with Jesus, so be it. He's worthy of it. If I got to suffer to take the gospel to these people, it's okay. Even if they chop my head off, it's going to be restored. All right. Not a hair of my head can fall without the Father's provision. 
may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Remember Jesus, Paul said in chapter 2, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He served others. What, what is Paul meaning here? Becoming like him in his death? Not to die a crucified life actually on the cross, but to live a crucified life. To die to himself daily for the sake of others. So that he says in verse 11, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul knew it required some labor, some effort, some suffering, and he was willing to do it all if he would know Christ better so that the last day he would be presented before Christ. Perfect. <laughs> you understand that? When we get before the Lord, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, he's not going to say D+. Plus. Right? C's get degrees in college, right? but it's not going to be what God presents before you. It's not going to be like, oh, okay, you just made it. When we stand before God, he will say perfect through Christ. And if we stand on our own records, it will just be a mass total of imperfection and impurity. Christ alone. Paul wants to warn us here, don't add anything beyond faith in Christ as the basis for your salvation. And if you have faith in Christ, you have everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would sink this word into our souls. That even this week, we wouldn't live to earn your favor. But to show how deeply we appreciate your favor, your grace to us in Christ. And help us to live for you and to love you. Save many, Lord, who, who may not know you this morning. For your son's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.